Cucu, as they say in Italy. Or, hey there, if you're American. And, you're right, mate, if you're from the UK. Look, really, how many of these episodes have you listened to? How much have you got out of these conversations? And all that hard work we put into them. If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. Call it Dana if it makes it more palatable. You know it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free that we too often forget the hardworking men and women are giving up their time, energy and effort to make it for you. None of it is free. That includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com Scroll down on the right for the donation button and do your part. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I um, told you it wouldn't be easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, damn. That's right to the heart of the matter, isn't mm. it? Um, let, let's kind of do this conversationally. Not that I have some sort of packed answer mm. or something. Um, I think a practice is something you do regularly. It's a routine. You do it routinely, but you don't do it ro- rotely as a matter of pure habit. It's, uh, it's a repetitive set of actions and, and, and I think, you know, rather than talking very general, we're talking about in terms of like, say, a Buddhist type practice or contemplative practice or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think so. Is that okay to talk about it? Yeah, good. Let's focus on that. Good. Yeah. So it's, it, 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 it's, it's, it's something you do regularly with devotion. Um, it's something that has consequences for life and, it's something that if you're doing it, what I would say properly, it actually is not a part of your life that that fits in easily with the other parts of your life. It's something that is that challenges the the status quo or the normal flow of life that we find ourselves uh, lapsing into because of those around us and so forth, um, because of society. A practice, I guess, in that sense, has uh, an element of resistance to it. I mean, why would you need to practice if society were really wonderful, and if just our our modes of being together in in society were fulfilling? Why would we need an extra practice? I I remember when I worked at the Buddhist Institute, the Wan Institute. People used to always look askance at me when I would say, we should try to create the world where we don't need to meditate. And they were like, huh? Mm -hmm. Because they thought meditation was some sort of special practice, whereas I thought it was, always thought it was part of the project of creating the kind of world where we wouldn't need such, such practices, so to speak. So the the practice would be embedded in our, our modes of life. Um, Practice is everywhere. You know, we're, we're creatures of habit, which means that we've engaged in practices, whether it's like sitting on the couch at night, watching Netflix movies, eating chips, whatever it is. Uh, I mean, this goes back to Aristotle's idea of the, you know, ha- habit related to habitus, habitas, habitual, how we live, you know, our habitats and all that. Um, these are these are some ideas about practice. I mean, maybe we can let it unfold more thoroughly. Um 
I, I maybe the, the most important one I'd like to maybe emphasize here is that I don't think a practice should be an element of consolation. It, it, it could have an element of consolation, but I don't think it should be in the service of consolation. I, I don't know why I think that. Um, maybe just some of my influences, like Dorothy Day is someone I've always read and been very interested in, the founder of the Catholic Worker. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She lived from like, I don't know, like 1897 to 1980, I think, actually. I was exposed to her earlier, and I've always been very interested in Dorothy Day. But just the idea I'm thinking of is she was dismayed at the fact that Catholics seemed to think that the practice of Catholicism was going to church, singing hymns, tithing, performing certain rituals during Mass and holidays, and some sort of very uh, vague ethical moral system. Uh, she thought that the lesson of Jesus was a lesson of rebellion and refusal <laughs> and resistance and being at odds with the status quo and the the powers of and principalities of the world, as she put it. Um, so I think I've been influenced by her idea of practice in that regard. Mm-hmm. There's some I- ideas there. Quite uncommon ideas. If we talk about the glossy magazines which publish on such topics as meditation and Buddhism and practice, I mean, the, this word disruptive um, makes me think of it being in, in opposition to the whole notion of practice as a curative form. Do you still see a place for the curative or that kind of approach to practice fitting in with this more rebellious or more disruptive or more, dare I say, anarchic approach? Yeah, I mean, I think curative in the sense of that a practice can serve being more at ease with yourself, you know, more at home in your own skin. uh, And maybe a practice could have a curative element in 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 regards to, say, what Freud called, um, um, like, you know, neurotic unhappiness or neurotic misery, like maybe can help us just get to the point of everyday unhappiness <laughs> in his sense. In other words, what I mean is uh, maybe a practice can can help adjust uh, certain habits, ways of thinking, ways of being that cause uh, pain and difficulty where it's really not necessary or also give a sense of of peace, like again, going back to Dorothy Day, like one of the reasons she came to Catholicism is she understood it as offering something way beyond herself, and kind of what she needed to do was get beyond herself and and embrace the suffering of others. To, and that, that in a sense had the curative effect of freeing her from her own neurotic misery. Mm-hmm. It created problems and pain and difficulty, but it was of a different order. So curative in that sense, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you, you seem to be pointing towards a, a path of service in many ways. Yeah, I yeah. think that's important. I do. And th- this will dovetail with some of the anarchist ideas that, I mean, my idea of practice, oh, that's actually great that you bring that up, is that it should always be collective. It should always be in community. It, it should always involve others. It's not an isolated event. What does it mean that I can go up to my room and sit and meditate or whatever for an hour and come out feeling fine? Well, okay, that, that has a certain value. That's, that's, that's nothing wrong with that. We all want to feel good, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a no-win no proposition. I mean, it's a proposition where I'll be constantly caught up in this, this need to do that. 
if I start working with others, starting creating different forms of life, organization, a sense of having an impact in the world. We just did a, a seminar, insight seminar on Spinoza. And one of the things I took from that was that he thought that the goal of a human being is to effect and be affected by, to express and affect the world in certain ways and be affected by the world. So very involved in the world. So I do think it's very communal and social. Mm-hmm. It sh- or it should be. I don't mind saying should be either. <laughs> it's always pre- when we're talking about practice, we're also talking about prescriptions, right? There's just one perplexity that comes to my mind when people talk or wish to front or emphasize this collective element of practice. In that, you know, many people approach these kinds of um, techniques or whatever because they're they're in a state, they're a mess, they're unbalanced, mm-hmm. they're lost and confused, and often I think trying to come at service or community work with that baggage uh, can entail many issues. So I think one sense of of practice as a form of of working on oneself is that it would prepare the ground, so to speak, for them to be able to then be of better service, right? Yeah. If I understand correctly, I I think that you're also pointing to a certain danger here. And I think think practice is dangerous. I I, I think it's always dangerous. I think think if I understand you correctly, you're pointing to one of the dangers, and that is of of losing oneself and some sort of collective, an ideology, a subject formation. You know, these are things that we've talked about, you and I, going way, way back. And it shows up here in full force. Mm -hmm. The practice is... like saturated by subject formation, ideology, and so forth. And I agree, there, there's a real danger of that. And that's why that's why I'm giving such care, careful thought to the nature of practice. I have a group where we, we meet on Monday nights every of the week and we think through practice. And I, I got to tell you more about that, but it's, it's very self-conscious. And one of the elements of it is we make it as explicit as possible these dangers, you know, like point out the pitfalls mm-hmm. of – because you know, there's a comfort in going with the group. There's a comfort of being part of a larger whole. But that, that's, not, that's not what a practice can, should be about, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about losing yourself in a group. I, yeah, I don't know what the right language is. I don't want to, you know, like, I don't know if the language is about finding yourself. I, I don't know what the purpose of a practice is. Uh, I think there are only purposes of different practices. And I mm-hmm. could talk more, if you like, at some point about the root text that we created for a practice. But um, yeah, you're, there's the danger of, you know, it, and a lot of people, you know, Dogen talks about that. You know, first you have to find the self before you can get into the process of losing the self mm-hmm. and becoming one with all things. So a lot of mm-hmm. psychologists talk about that. So the good spiritual teachers is this idea in mysticism that first you have to, to, to be, you know, William James even talked about that, the healthy-minded uh, before you can get on with this, this treading into these, you know, like wandering into these, 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 these darker, more uncertain areas that, that practice takes you. Mm. So, yes. Yeah, it's that lingering dichotomy, I think, between, how should I say this, people being puppets to their own dysfunction and then people being uh, puppets to the dysfunction of groups. Yeah. And, you know, this is both a personal and a social challenge of of how do we cultivate uh, spaces in which young and older minds can grow in a way that allows them to preserve some degree of autonomy and find their own way through things uh, and not just be, you know, mechanisms in the regurgitation of some highly dysfunctional form. 
And I think a lot of people, if I was to be generous and fair in my reading of why it is a lot of people do end up focusing on things like meditation is they are, whether correctly or incorrectly, looking for some kind of means to make sense of themselves before they attempt to do something meaningful in the world. And I, I've just met a lot of people who, you know, try to, to jump the gun, so to speak, and end up just fucking up, basically, in groups and failing miserably to kind of do what they wanted to do. And often it seems because they haven't quite managed to figure out how to live a relatively balanced life within themselves before for engaging in those things. But uh, I think it's a perennial issue, Glenn. And I think I'm glad that your group and you are, are, are working on that. And we'll, we'll talk about that yeah. a little bit more in a moment. But um, if I, can I just add, add something to what you said there? Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, I, I, that's another really interesting, super important point is that, like, you know, a person comes into a community and if the community is, I, I don't know, what was the term you used? Dysfunctional then of course the person, then you've, you've created a, you know, a sphere of subject formation that's going to create a dysfunctional subject. And that's one of the things that's extraordinarily difficult about this. And there's added difficulty of um, the kinds of people who are also often attracted to sort of spiritual, spiritualized communities are, are very dysfunctional. They bypass certain kinds of work. Um, and another interesting point you made there was about you actually made an assumption that I would agree with about what a practice should involve, and that is creating an autonomous individual. And I think a lot of practice communities precisely do not want to create an autonomous individual. They want to create a, a replicated individual who can rep further replicate their ideology and so forth. So um, you get, you're pointing to the, the fraught nature of practice and practice communities. And uh, I'm, I'm glad too, because it, it is an extraordinarily difficult thing to create what you and I might agree is a non-dysfunctional community that creates a subject who we would agree, you know, or we I maybe could make the case for that kind of subject. I think a lot of reasonable people would say we'd like to see in the world. But that's very, very difficult. And, we, and I'm happy you're doing this on your podcast. It's not something we give much thought to. Yeah, and it, it may be that it's a kind of eternally idealized project in the sense that there is no there is no perfect formula. Yeah. It's a it's a constant work in progress because we humans are, as we've said before, you know, imperfect and flawed and, and so forth. But it certainly is helpful for us to be talking about this and, and to be hopefully awake and aware of just how uh, the dysfunctionality in groups often plays out as a kind of narrative which covers up covers up the shit in the woods, so to speak, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I like that word replication. That's great. It made me think of Star Wars for some reason and <laughs> the reproduction of robots, but there it is. So look, um, here's the next question. The next question is what's your practice these days? What is it you're actually doing? Again, that's a hard question. Mm. Um, yes, last night we started we started our session, our, we called it non-Buddhist non practice posse, the non, of course, a reference to the Laura Wellen inspiration of a lot of the work we do. Um, and I made the comment that, um, okay, we're going you know, we're, we're to talk a bit about what we're going to do, and then we're going to do the practice. And then someone corrected me and said, well, the, the talking about it's part of our practice. And I was like, this that's a great point, you know? And so, so, the, the kind of maybe I talk about it in very specific terms in terms of that group because that's really where my practice is happening. Although it's very difficult to say, what I'm doing with insight seminars 
is the practice that emerged directly out of the, the work on speculative non-Buddhism. I mean, that that when I, when I looked at like, okay, I've done all this thinking on speculative non-Buddhism, conversation, dialogue, debates, essay writing, et cetera, reading, what is the next step? And it turned out the next step was something like insight seminars. And that's that comes directly out of that. So that was the practice step out of uh, you know, uh, an isolated contemplative. You know, uh, you know, we were using the Deleuzian idea of the 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 image of thought that is Buddhist practice. It must, you know, everyone knows. You know, there's a true self. Everyone knows. You know, there's there's you know the necessity of isolated contemplation and, and all that sort of thing. Everyone knows the value of yogic practice, and. Um, one of the things that came out of all that work on speculative on Buddhism is that we want to have a practice that's dialogical, educational, that exposes the blind spots that that we maybe you know too much we use the word ideology, but that the blind spots of our ideology or the our ignorance about our own subject formation and the decisions we make. And so that's an educational practice. So that's very much part of that's, that's a practice to me. The, uh, but, but more kind of specifically in terms of Buddhist practice, um, we, we created a, I wrote after about, I don't know, it must've been close to 10 years of wringing my hands about it. I wrote a text called the stranger sutra and it's on the blog and you can see it. And it was my attempt. It's, it's Buddha fictional in the sense that I'm taking the Anapanasati Sutta, a text I've worked with f- for decades now, and I rewrote it in a way that I thought was responsible to, you know, certain things, you know, certain material realities, and to my own desire to create a courageous subject in the world. And so it has a lot of language in there about that, and embedded in it is a contemplative practice that comes out of the Anapanasati Sutta, which is about, you know, I breathe in, no one I'm breathing in, I breathe out, etc. So what we do is we, 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 and we're studying the elements of ritual. So we, Ronald Grimes is a guy who started a field called Ritual Studies, and we look at some of his work where he's trying to figure out what are the components of ritual, what is the value of ritual, how does it work, is it even avoidable, how do we critique a ritual for having failed or better or succeeded, et cetera, et cetera? So we're creating a ritualized practice which involves we, we might have say ten people in, in the room and we go one, two, three, four, five. They someone reads in an intoned, you know, manner from the text, and then and then the next person, the next person. We come to the practice session and then someone reads it. I breathe in. You know, where's I'm breathing, I'm breathing. And then we sit there for as long as that person decides and clap of the hands. And then the next person reads, I breathe in, aware of my emotions, I breathe, et cetera. Hmm. And then we go through the text like that. And then we finish uh, with certain ritualized manners. And we're still figuring it out and discussing it, which is part of the practice. And then we go into the great feast section, which is to read or discuss something from you know a broad f- range of literature, mm-hmm. psychology, psychoanalysis, literature, poetry, whatever, that's supposed to somehow feed back into you know the practice itself. So this is a way to avoid sufficiency, for example. And there's even language of of you know there are two warnings in the text about the spiritual death drive and about sufficiency. Um, 
And uh, there's something else I want to say about that. I kind of slipped my mind, though. Um, But so part of the practice is um, um, the communal recitation. The Oh, yes, here's what I wanted to say. We actually created a document. I I didn't. Someone else created a document. I have a seminar series. We're meeting tonight for the fourth time um, where people come in there. They're working through creating what – what are known as X fictions. I, I don't think I need to explain that, do I? No, is, no. Yeah, no, that's too much. Um, they're, they're taking some religious or spiritual, whatever material that they find valuable, and they're reworking it in a way where they think they've they've undone the sufficiency and the mm-hmm. capture and, and all that of it. So we, we one person created a Talmudic text for the Stranger <laughs> Sutra, where on the left-hand side, there's additions and commentary and that sort of thing. And the right-hand side, there are criticisms and responses to the criticism. So that's part of the practice as well. Mm-hmm. I loved it because I thought this is a way to keep the text breathing and alive and keep it from avoiding this aura of, you know, of, of, plen- plen- of sufficiency and of, you know, correctness and all that. And so, so this is the practice that I'm doing now. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, lots of thoughts went through my mind while you were speaking. I think this need to engage with texts creatively is is fundamental in this day and age. And I think it's something that's really not carried out enough by people. Um, you know, there's this uh, this this common refrain you hear amongst Buddhist teachers that you know that, that the teachings are obviously just fine as they are, and it would be incredibly arrogant of us mere mortals to tamper with them, <laughs> which. Which itself is interesting, um, <laughs> but I think just the liberation that comes about, right? It's it's like you know, it's like you've uncovered a treasure and you open up the box, and you know, instead of just putting it in a glass cage inside a, a museum, you take it out and you play with it, and you put it around the house, and you see what happens. You you feel it on your skin, so to speak. So I would like to see more people doing this, as long as they don't take it too seriously. I think there is the risk that. We won't be arrogant, so to speak, but we might get carried away with our own stories being somehow rewoven through these new narratives. So again, I think there's a challenge there in what you're describing, which is we need to keep ourselves honest and we need to keep ourselves on our toes and and stay creative with it all, right? Yeah. And you're also, you know, very astutely naming another extraordinary difficulty and danger here that just becomes another silly you know, expression of someone's opinions. And it's it's what you're describing here, this, this kind of creative work of what we're both describing is extraordinarily difficult. Right. And there has the added difficulty. It, 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 you know, if you study rit- ritual studies, makes this point over and over again, that, that what makes rit- ritual powerful often, and even the ritual just sitting on a, a cushion in a meditative posture, is that these are ancient, you know, these are ancient modes these are not, they're not newly invented. Newly invented rituals know, is, are hard to take seriously. They, they don't seem authentic, you know. Um, so, so, so that's part of what we're trying to figure out is, like someone recommended last night, like, you know, we should have a kind, like in, in a lot of Zen circles, you have these litanies in Catholicism as well, where you recite the names of the saints or in the Zen circles, the lineage, and you name all the teachers. And this person said, we should have a litany recognizing the the lineage of our influences here. Because part of the idea is 
there's a concept in ritual studies that says power is not manipulative hidden power is manipulative so there's there's this value in what we're doing in our practice of making explicit of trying to be transparent so so he made the very interesting point that we should be transparent about our influences and recite like you know Francois Lorwell and you know Gilles Deleuze and Hannah Arendt and and he said but we should do it with this with the with the fuck you mudra <laughs> with the middle fingers up yeah oh. because because the idea is like we're not really honoring these you know the academy or the the you know the Buddhist lineage it's it's really is that we needed to do this because there was something profoundly lacking. And what mm-hmm. what you bequeath to us that there, there's there's a an implicit critique in the creation of a new ritual is that what existed previously was is problematic or lacking in some way. Mm-hmm. You know why did they, why did why did Black Americans create Kwanzaa? You know because there's a lot in the Christmas that's that has elements of white supremacism in it and so forth and so so there's nothing in the kwanzaa rituals or texts about that critique but it's implicit in it mm-hmm. yeah there's again a lot in there um i think something i've been doing for a while now is is attempting to make peace with history and uh interestingly enough what you just described as a practice i've actually been doing on and off myself for the last year <laughs> so I anticipated you a bit on that one. Um, I didn't do it with a middle finger, though. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not my kind of mudra. I think attention there is is rooted in something very human, which is you know what does it mean to respect things appropriately and not turn them into venerated objects of of aloofness. Um, to me, gratitude is something that's helped me to overcome some of my rougher edges character wise and i found it quite useful a, a while back especially because you know my my main buddhist background is tibetan and they're really really into this i mean they'll they'll bore you to death for hours at the beginning of rituals you're naming every single member of the lineage going all the way back as they believe mm. to this buddha but uh, i found it really useful and i mean i i did this the first time and every single human being i've met that had a, pow- <clears throat> a powerful influence on my life was chucked in there and one of those was you too, Glenn, and of course, Francois Laruelle. And um, I don't know, I, I think what I'm primarily interested in is not necessarily seeing the limitations and faults in tradition or our forebears, but just recognizing the, the fundamental humanity of them all and how that brings us back to all being participants in a, in a shared project which goes back you know, to the first humans that started producing some kind of thought and language. And I find that rooting myself to that long lineage at least helps me to avoid sort of singing the excessive praises of anything or just kind of dismissing offhand the kinds of practices I might not like, whether Catholic, because I now live in a Catholic country, or, you know, the kind of New Age rituals that my mother led me into when she was, uh, you know, when I was living at home with her and I was quite young. And I I found it really, really liberating, to be quite frank. And... uh, I think there is an interesting point there between accepting the role of history and then um, somehow exploring the potential with which we can liberate ourselves from its obfuscating and heavy-handed presence in our lives. Um, yeah, those are a couple of thoughts that come to my mind. I don't, 
I, I personally wouldn't add the fuck you mudrick. I'm more where you are with that in terms of gratitude. The person mm. who suggested this is a young man working on his dissertation. <laughs> so I, I can understand his, right, his, right. His, his, the spirit of in what she suggested that. It, it kind of yeah. took me aback uh, too. Cause I, I'm more in uh, uh, I'm more in a, in a mind of gratitude at this stage of my life. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree with you. So maybe it's just a reflection of us getting older. <laughs> well, there's a lot to to be said for that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was another point as well, which um, ran through really what you were saying, which is this: um, the need, the desire, the fear around, and the challenge of making things anew. Yeah, and I think this is rooted deeply within the the two areas of all this work that you and I resonate with very strongly, which is the role of ideology within spirituality and religion to turn us into unwitting subjects or reiterations of a, of a given image of man. And I think that that, that, that both operates at the theoretical and practical level. Um, it's part of a long-term vision of what we might w- wish or desire to do with practice. And I think it's immediate and you know visible within any kind of daily practice that we engage in that again i think is an area of practice that socially and collectively we could be speaking about far more instead we still seem to get caught up in these discussions between experts and you know lineage holders and followers who look up to these idealized images of what practice might be Um, i wonder if you've been engaging with that kind of challenge in this group but also within any other areas of practice that you might be involved in, you know that that kind of desire to to um, to invigorate, bring life through a ritualized approach to any kind of practice. Let me know if I didn't if I misunderstood you. But so are you asking if I could speak more to ritual or practice as as a, a form that in, that brings value and increased vigor and meaning or something to life? Is that what you're asking or? No, not exactly. Let me uh, try and be clear. So I'm thinking about what well, let's use the uh, the form of practice most listeners will be uh, familiar with. Let's say sitting meditation. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, let's say this person's got instructions from a teacher or a book, and you know, they sit down for let's say half an hour, an hour every day, right at nine o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Now that sitting practice there can almost be experienced or lived as a form of indoctrination or of the fabrication of certain states of being yeah it can be the fossilization of a conceptualization of self it can be something that remodels the self within an ideological image mm-hmm. right Absolutely. even though it's got another yeah. name right oh i'm yes. meditating i'm doing this past i'm doing zogchen very well said yeah yeah and the question for me in a sense both for myself as somebody who's been you know involved in this for for over two decades now uh but also in my work when i coach people is just is that how how do you invigorate that? And by invigorate, I guess I'm saying how do you avoid mm. it becoming a process of fossilization? Ooh, that's right. That's a, that's another one of that that question just sent chills through me because I think <laughs> that that's the question. Right. And yeah, I that's think the one I, I think wanted to ask you about abs- <laughs> and and I I I have a provisional answer that I've been working with because of course I've I mean. Yeah, anyone who thinks about this really, really hard the way you do will stumble on that question because, mm-hmm. you know, part of part of thinking about it real hard is, is seeing the kinds of effects practices do have. And you name those, 
It's just a replication of an ideological image and, all, and so forth. My, my provisional answer that I've been working with is making explicit, making explicit those dangers, making explicit the fact that this is not what we want this practice to do. Be, be aware, you know, beware um, that practice is something that seems to br- come, bring along with it the potential for all of those pitfalls you just described. I, mm-hmm. I don't know other than that. I mean, it, it, what I'm saying presupposes that you've constructed a practice with text and literature and ideas and concepts and language. And we also have to talk about the, the social formation of it, you know, the institutional aspect of it, but also it has institutional aspects that really are committed to fostering creativity and freedom or however, that's a, that, maybe that's a problematic word, but creativity and intelligence, let's call it, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, including the intelligence to recognize when those kinds of more negative, what you, would, you and I would consider more negative formations are occurring. So I don't know other than making it explicit. In other words, interweaving it within the formation itself, it being th- those dangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing we haven't really mentioned explicitly in this regard is also how the the basic position of approaching the Great Feast is also an immensely useful antidote, especially if you take the feast as, as open-ended, right? It's not closed at any point. So therefore, I think if we get into any kind of like intellectual, uh, but also almost phenomenological smugness, that's usually a sign that we're, we're probably stuck somewhere, Right. Uh, yes, I, I think that's a great point. I, and this is actually part of my answer, thanks for reminding me, uh, is the great feast. Because if you start introducing uh, you know, a plethora of ideas and, and texts and knowledges and concepts from various fields, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're lessening, the, you're reducing the chances that these other kinds of capture occur. And because that's also becoming a value that starts circulating in the subject forming interactions, the value of, of bringing other ideas to bear on. So we, what, one, one, one person who participates uh, thinks that we should um, – she's a, she's a convert to Judaism and she says that uh, um, when, when she was going through the process of you know, converting, she learned that there was uh, – there's a figure in Jewish history. It's it's a person I forget the, the term. It's a person who's always present during the debates with the rabbis, and the job of this person is to always disagree with whatever's said. <laughs> and she says we should have such a person in our practice community. And we always we always laugh laugh and chuckle, but there's really a lot of value and wisdom in that. Absolutely. Oh, I like that idea. I think that's the best idea we've, we've yeah. come up with today. So <laughs> well no done matter, to that person. No matter what is said, you, this person disagrees Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, offers yeah. reasons for the disagreement because there are always reasons to disagree. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love that because it kind of descri- it, it disrupts that, um, that natural tendency for things to kind of take a life of their own and move off. Yes in a direction that fits in with the desire, right? The unspoken desire of the group. So in saying this, you and I, we're also, someone may have to be listening and saying like, okay, well, this, so you're, having, you're making assumptions about what a practice should be or should do, and we are. 
So we're saying like we're believing that a subject in the world should be a kind of person who always can see multiple perspectives and and is self-critical and has the courage to be critical of other views. And then the person can say, why do you think that person is important in the world? And then we can give reasons for that. But I think all of this should be as explicit and out in the open as possible in, in, a, in a practice formation. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. And again, another question that would, would respond to that would be, what does it take for a person to get to that point in their lives as a certain... And in fact, that would bring us back to another question, which I think is is one of those almost unanswerable questions of, you know, who gets to determine what the value of a thing is in the world, right? Who gets to decide whether we should have religion or not? Yeah. Um, it makes me think of, um, you know, a common critique which gets thrown at somebody like Richard Dawkins, who's obviously one of the world's most famous atheists, but we might also call him an anti-religious, mm -hmm. uh, you know, provocateur as well. And I like the guy very much. I appreciate his character. I, I, I appreciate the fact that he winds a lot of people up. But <laughs> I'm glad he's not calling the shots about whether religion should exist in the world yeah, or not. Right. Because I just don't assume that I or anybody else would have the wisdom, you know, the real wisdom to know whether we should abolish something or not. You know, it's actually a really, really tricky question when you look at inclinations, family background, social norms. It's a, it's a big, big topic. Yeah. Um, Can I interject something there? Yeah, please do. And I, that's another really big, important topic. And I, I, this is the value of this, this, this guy, Francois Laruel, who would, who would say to Dawkins, you seem to misunderstand that, that you, you were actually just attacking one formations or various formations that have been, you know, created out of this raw human material that we have tagged religious. And Laruel would say, this is just raw cultural material that people have, have come up with to try to figure out how to live life together in the world. And we can do all kinds of interesting things with it. You can form it in all kinds of ways that you see. You seem to misunderstand, Richard Dawkins, that you're just talking about one particular, you know, manifestation of this material, and the, the material in and of itself is is nothing. It's inert. Mm. Uh, something needs to be done with it, and this is exactly what I think of, uh, this element of practice is about. Is a lot of what we've talked about here is the importance of 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 being explicit about ideology and subject mm -hmm. formation, mm -hmm. because which has the the hidden further hidden assumption that it's inevitable and it's always occurring in practices. It's just never really made explicit. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree. And another thing to say that is, again, I refer to Dorothy Day, who, um, who, well, I, I, someone actually made this point in, in, in our, in our meeting last night. So I only have to bring in Dorothy Day, but the idea that there was some conversation going on about whether, certain there's sort of liminal moments in ritual where you, you pass from one thing to the next and they're called liminal like spaces in between it's like the limit like the the passageway from the doorway into another room it, it marks a separation and is you know a transformation of sorts and one person was arguing that the and, and we were saying that the ritual marks these transformations or these 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 movements from one space to another through the limon and 
usually with a bow or all kinds of things, you know, crossing yourself, whatever it is, you know, kinds of ritual gestures. Um, and one person was saying it should be come out of the embodiment of the person and the person should decide what should happen in that moment. And another person was arguing that, no, the whole point of ritual is it tells us what to do. Like, is that it, it takes away, she thought that was kind of coming out of a neoliberal, you know, anything goes, you know, whatever pleases you. If you don't like it, don't do it. And she says, this is where Dorothy Day comes in. Is like, there seems to be a, conserv- a kind of conservative aspect of ritual in a certain way that it, you know, the question, you know, it can't be an anything goes thing. There's something about the ritual formation that claims have figured certain things out. Um, and, and when you come into the ritual, the practice, you, you learn to practice, you know, it's, so one, one thing we came up with, with a, a music metaphor is like, so is the ritual, we're trying to create like classical music or is it like the Indian raga, you know, where the, the classical music, you know, it's like the notes are played a certain way. There's very little variation over time and space, how a score is played. Uh, it's how the master wrote it down, or even the timings in there. And the raga is like. It's sort of like a jam session within certain parameters. You can tell it's a raga. It's, it's, it's not, again, you can, the instrumentation and the kinds of chord progressions and, and so forth are recognizable as raga. Uh, so th- that's something else to think about a, a practice. You know, where is it on this continuum of codified and fixed and rigid and open and creative and anything goes. And that's something to, to make explicit as well. And I'm, I'm coming down kind of on the side of you, you need the codification because it can't be an anything goes thing. It, it, formation and like, you know, if your arm's broken and you need, it needs to be the formation of, of it back to its normal you know, way is you, you put a cast on there. There's very little room for movement. And so that's another, that's another aspect of ritual that's usually hidden and implicit, but I think that should be made ex- explicit. Mm-hmm. I forget why we got onto that topic now. <laughs> I forget what the actual point was. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Me neither. This point you keep making now, I think it's the third time of, of making things explicit. Is something that resonates with me, obviously. Um, going back to the point I made about age, I mean, it takes time as well to get perspective on these things. You know, you need to leave, live a certain amount of life before you can start to gain enough perspective mm-hmm. to make sense of these things. I think that's a reflection of the condition of our age as well, of course, right? We, we know too much. You know, Pandora's box is wide open and we can't, we can't pretend that we don't know these things. We can't pretend that a return or a retreat to the stability of a fiction will somehow solve the problems that we're facing today. We, we, we have to go forwards, I think. And mm. we're in the bind that's kind of um, showing up in these different points that we're touching on today of having to carry history with us, but also, you know, venture out in some way towards terrains anew. And maybe that terrain is secular, uh, circular, sorry, um, Glenn, we, we've spoken on various occasions, and we're speaking again today, and obviously these themes come up again. It might be useful to talk about obstacles for a moment, mm-hmm. but also uh, like personal gains. So, yeah. you know, you've got a long history with Buddhism, both academic and personal, and you've got a long history now with working with the thought of Francois Laruel and this whole project of non-Buddhism and speculative non-Buddhism, and now Insight Seminars. I guess what I'd like to ask is this, if we think about 
that the flavors of the work that are coming up in our conversation today, the kinds of insights we're discussing, what would be a couple of the obstacles that have presented themselves since you began this kind of work that you had to contend with? And what were the consequences of you, you know, navigating those successfully? This is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping, which I quite like, really. Housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping. It sounds like the kind of thing upper-middle-class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway, that's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else. Perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway, I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen, really, in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this. So, some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by hard-working, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So, give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring and guidance to those taking, well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism, waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc, etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too. And it seems that other folks are too. Three options, coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, and the shamanic stuff that, well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about, to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need. Another great question. You, you mean going back to me when I was very young and just starting out in these practices? Is that what you mean, like through the whole not, process or no? Not necessarily, no, because uh, in fact, I wasn't quite sure how to word that. But let's say that there are two two prominent phases to your life, right? There's the one where you were involved with Buddhism uh, academically, yeah? And then, yep. you know, something in you started to shift and you started becoming interested in this non-Buddhist project, right? Yes. So let me let me focus in on that just to keep it keep it clearer. So you started off, you know, uh, obviously thinking about certain things way before this, but let's say 
um, from the point where you really started seriously engaging with the thought of Francois uh, Laruelle and you started coming up with this whole project of non-Buddhism. So once you started doing that, you know, obviously in a, a very, very real, very, very concrete, very, very specific kind of journey began, right? Yeah. Yeah, and if we think about that, obviously there were challenges within it, and it, you yes. know you don't make this explicit necessarily in all of your writing at the speculative non-Buddhism site, or even in the books that came afterwards. But from my own personal experience of wrestling with this kind of thought, I know that if you take it seriously, you know it causes rupture, and it causes quite serious break uh, within yourself, with within your relationship to the whole concept of personal practice, meditation, Buddhism. But also yourself as a person, you know. Yeah. So I guess what I'm interested in asking uh, and hearing from you is, during that process, there must have been quite serious challenges that came up for you or obstacles. If you think about that for a moment, are there one or two perhaps that you remember, and how did you deal with those, and what were the consequences of doing so? You asked the best questions, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, I, I once read that uh, there's there's actually a snippet. From some ancient Greek text, some some guy, uh, maybe he's a philosopher. I forget who it was, an historian, maybe who who talks about his encounter with Socrates on the street. He's like, yeah, you know, every time I, I walk down the street and I see Socrates coming, I think like, oh shit, here comes Socrates. He <laughs> he's going to sift my life. He's like, he can't just, have, you know, these are sifting your life kind of questions. Which are the best ones? Um, yeah, these are great. Um, I mean. I, I don't even, I'm sure where to begin here, but there were tremendous obstacles. Um, and so some of the obstacles have to do with um, you start to feel yourself isolated and estranged from something that used to be just a natural part of your life. Like we all, like you just thought you, you agreed with all this and you were in it and you were flowing with everyone else along with it. And all of a sudden you see something or realize something or have a viewpoint. I'm not saying that you're seeing the truth or something, but you develop a viewpoint perspective that alienates you. And this is, again, there's a notion of strange, strangeness and strange. That's why I call this suture, the stranger suture. There's a, this is something I experienced very directly is um, you start feeling estranged from the communities of agreement, it turns out, that that were your home for so long. That can have real-life consequences, such as losing a job. So I found myself, for example, incapable of running the meditation program at the Wan Institute where I was employed. Um the more I started getting this perspective on things and the consequences of that is that they, they canceled the program. I wanted to take it in a more social direction. I was like, rather than sit here this evening for three hours or this afternoon staring at the wall doing, you know, shikantaza, let's go down to the DMV and observe racism, you know, <laughs> the, the, the Department of Motor Vehicles, that is, in Philadelphia. Um and that sort of thing, or introducing literature or studying things that were not so explicitly yogic, you know, Buddhist, it has consequences like that. So estrangement is is bigger. And I remember that, you know, very early on when um, when um, I first started meditating. And not, not, well, okay, when I first started meditating, I was very, very young. I was like a 15-year-old kid. And I noticed it made things very difficult in my home life. I was still living with my parents. Um, 
Um, and I remember I started getting a perspective on thing on like hostility and aggression. And that was just kind of flowing part of the everyday life in the family. Um, you know, a family of seven people with, with a bunch of pets and everything. Um, um, so, so it wreaks havoc. This is go back to the very first thing I said that practices when done with devotion, which I think is only is an absolutely essential feature of making it a practice, uh, cause trouble. They wreak havoc. They alienate you from the status quo. I've had students come through the meditation program and say, I can no longer hang out with my friends because we meet every Tuesday and go to the mall and go shopping and gossip. I don't want to do that anymore. Um, and also, I mean, my own case, it, 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 meant, it meant giving up tenure as a professor when I started becoming aware of, um, you know, I have to be careful here. I don't, I don't want, I don't want to like insult people, but you know, you know, what kind of what goes on in the university, what the American university is about with its debt and its, its formation as a, you know, you know, its, its relation to the economy. We'll just put it that way. That education is off is too much in the service of the economy in America, and it, it places students in vast debt, which also links them to the economy for decades to come. How, how, I could no longer uh, participate, and that's why I gave up tenure. I mean, th- those are real consequences. Those are obstacles that creates obstacles in life. Like, you know, I, I gave up my job. I gave up my salary, um, mm. and. This is this is one reason I think I started with the way I did that practices must have consequences to be practices. Other the, otherwise, they're just accoutrements. Is that the word? Is that what's the word I'm thinking of here? They're just they're just like it's just decoration mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for for a life, uh, and I don't think that's what practice is supposed to do. So, you know, it's the same with the anarchist literature. I would say there were there were three three moments in my life that created uh, tremendous obstacles in the sense I'm talking about, but also uh, pathways to a new life. And that was those three things are um, Buddhism, anarchism, and non philosophy. And they they have they had tremendous consequences. Uh, things should not. Rem- I once read that uh, I, I I think um, is it uh, Kafka. Who says something to the effect that you know uh, you should never open a book unless you're prepared to be devastated? Like it sounds a little melodramatic. Who you know? Maybe you wrote that as a teenager, but the idea is is that to live in a way where these the things we're engaged in have real consequences. Like why say you're an anarchist or a Buddhist? Uh, if you're not really going to, I'd like to say, suffer the consequences in the world, because there's something, again, going back to Dorothy Day, uh, about these formations that um, are not worldly in, in, in a very real sense. So, I, it, yeah, I, that's, kind of, that's kind of broad in general, but does that answer the question somewhat? It certainly does something. Um <laughs> Again, there's a lot in there, but there are two points that came to my mind in your concluding thoughts, which were that I wonder to what degree this kind of approach to the world, uh, you know, again, we have to be careful with words, but is almost innate to some people and not others. You know, some people are obviously driven uh, 
to ask harsher questions and are willing to accept the sacrifices that can come about from doing so. You know, it's almost like, uh, to what degree are you a masochist? You know, are you willing to suffer for some kind of real, real world experience? I think the word I like to use a lot, which is in tune with what you were saying, is disruption. Mm. Um, for me, one of the things that keeps me on my toes, you were talking about making things explicit. Another one for me is disrupting complacency and just recognizing where comfort becomes almost to the norm or the habit of how I experience myself or something or a relationship, whatever. I, you know, I'm, I always have this innate drive to want to disrupt that constantly. And that keeps things real. And I, I think that's what I'm after in a way from practice, uh, whether it be theoretical or practical within Buddhism or some other sphere, uh, but especially in human relationships, is what allows something to be real? And again, what, what do I mean by that? I guess I'd put that in contrast with this concept that I've been playing around with, which is this idea that complacency could be understood as like the, the performance of the ideal of practice rather than actually hmm. the practice doing something to you and you doing something to the practice. Yes. Yeah. That performative nature to me is often where the problem lies. It's like, you know, can we wake, wake ourselves up, wake each other up, wake the world up to, to what's actually real. Yeah. It's like if you're faced with death or serious illness, suddenly, as we were saying before we started this conversation, you go, oh shit, this is real. Yeah. And that's the point I'm interested in where practice takes place in any area, in any practice field that a human might engage in. I yeah, some several really interesting points there. I'd really like the way you emphasized the I when you made that statement. That's what I'm looking for in a practice. So maybe that's one thing that, that should be stated explicitly. I think we're both saying, or I'm certainly saying, I and I have a hunch you you would agree with this, is that we're not claiming that practice is something that's involved with universals. Like, mm. is that like, we, you know, people might hear us talking to say like, that, that sounds too macho or too, like too <laughs> harsh or something. And, and I would say, yeah, um, I'm going to give you some reasons about why I think these are values, valuable, and you might not agree and it might not be for you. So again, that's this non-sufficiency that says, you say what I'm looking for. I think that's very important. I think one of the parts of, one of the elements of practice that make it so problematic is it's always Virtually, I think I, I know very few examples, of, if any at all, that present itself as particular and localized and and limited in some way. Practice mm. something. There's something about what we're calling practice, yogic practice, spiritual practice that 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 has this aura of universality and sufficiency to it. So. I do like that emphasis on on the eye, and we have to give reasons about why you know why we're we're calling for these values and so forth. But that, that's part of what a practice does; it offers reasons. And I also liked um, that this idea of, of performance. I can't read my handwriting. Performance of the idea. Um, that that yeah, that's another. That's just another way to kind of create a kind of complacency, isn't it? Or something that. This is something I find in anarchist circles. I found it in Buddhist circles or, you know, in my old days in punk rock circles. It was what bothered me was I saw the performance of the idea of, say, punk rock. Like, again, mm. it goes to like and, – and a corollary to that is – so I remember, for example, when I was I was – 16-year-old or something, my father said, go down to the art school. I heard they're hiring in the kitchen. They're looking for a dishwasher. So I went down to the art school, and they had me fill out this application in the cafeteria. When it was, it, 
lunchtime. So there were like hundreds and hundreds of these wacky Philadelphia art students in there. And I remember thinking like, wow, they all look like art students. <laughs> That's not problematic, but my parents were friends with artists who just look like my parents. I like, mm -hmm. what is the disjunction here? Like, and of course, this is part of my early education in identity and subject formation. And that's what you're doing as a young person. I'm not criticizing that. But I, I had another experience where I was uh, in, I, 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 I have I have a background in punk rock as well. I was in I was in the van with a very well known American punk band called Black Flag, going from a show to a party. Um, a friend of mine organized a show, so I was I was involved in helping him with that. And um, and they were they were teasing me. The band members and their roadies were teasing me because of the way I was dressed, because I looked like just a college student. I'm like I am just a fucking college student. I, <laughs> I didn't look sufficiently punk to them. And again, it was this idea that. Of, of performance of the idea mm. and and it's it's something that it, it concerned me back then I thought about it what does it mean to really live the spirit of something and not the the, the sort of superficial display of the thing so mm. that that's a really really interesting rich important point there yeah yeah and it's a tricky question and we we, we see this um playing out especially nowadays I think because of social media and this entire new kind of world in which the value is in appearance and the performance of appearance even. I think we may have even gone a step further, which is not just trying to be the appearance, but you perform the appearance, which is the appearance of a thing. Oh, yeah. That's just, yeah. It's a society of this spectacle, like, yeah. times 100 or something. I mean, he he was worried, he was thinking about television and radio and, and the internet is just, it's just the appearance of the appearance. It, does, it has to be no actual embodied embodiment behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -mm. That's a really interesting topic right there, disembodiment. But uh, before we start talking about vampires or ghosts, <laughs> time is always an enemy of the people. <laughs> and I want to talk a bit about your, your work on anarchism. Um, we've already spoken a bit about the non-Buddhism practice group, but we'll... Uh, We'll talk a bit more about that as well, just to get in some practical points in case people are listening, uh, interested in taking part. So look, let's talk about anarchism. You know, there, there's a lot that might be asked here, uh, but I think I'd like to to honour our listeners by seeing if we could start off with this this topic. What 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 would anarchic Buddhism look like? Another great question, and I hope someone will do some work in figuring this out more fully. Not that there are not people out there doing so. I think John Clark is an example of someone. Um, kind of the old lineage of Gary Snyder. I think he, he introduced mm. that in America anyway. Um, um, I mean, for one thing, it would be – it would look a lot different than it does now because the current formation of Buddhism – like if you could take a Buddhist Sangha and extrapolate that out to society as a whole – I mean, how would it look? It would be pretty top-down, authoritarian, hierarchical. You know, there would be there would be people who are less worthy and more worthy for, for whatever reasons. You know, have longevity or tests that they passed, or you know, koan, whatever it is. Um, it, so, an anarchic Buddhism would be one that is. Um, and, you know, I, this is this is going to be a, a, a naughty issue. Is I, I I don't think 
it's possible to get rid of something like leadership. Hmm. Are there a different degree? There, there, anarchism is, is egalitarian in a sense, but it's also aware of the fact that not everyone has the same knowledge and ability. So it becomes more of a question of how leadership or how authority manifests, um, how hierarchies are dealt with. Do they get inscribed into the institution? Um, or are they fluid? Again, are they made explicit? So an anarchist Buddhist community, I think, and I think Sean Bartone is someone you might want to talk to about this. He's given a lot of thought to this as well. I think you've had him on your show before, right? Um, yep. It would be, it would be um, there wouldn't be the master, there wouldn't be the authoritarian teacher. Um, there would be communal decision-making. There would be a process of, 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 of making decisions um, that involves dialogue and conversation and reason giving and that sort of thing. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, it, uh, it would be very sensitive to the ways that ex exploitation um, and oppression show up. And these, are, these do show up. In Buddhist communities, obviously, it's, it's, they're often disguised in terms of spiritual values, you know, with, with sort of spiritual, you know, screens. Uh, but oppression occurs and exploitation occurs. Now, I, I got into a thing with a Buddhist teacher not too long ago. He was asking, he put out a call for people to volunteer to do work in his zendo. And I just pointed out, like, at this time, like, at this really, really difficult time in America, you're asking people to do work for free. Do you do not want to rethink that? And he had no idea what I was talking about because to him, doing that kind of work was earning merit or showing your devotion or, you know, part of your karmic relationship to the teacher. And this was an American mm -hmm. teacher. But still, so I was like, say, that's exploitation. Um, you know, there's it, it would lack the, the usual coercive forms. Um, it would it would foster in a very genuine way creativity and intelligence. So hmm. that's very vague right now. But if we actually start talking about how that will look in action, I think it would turn out to look a lot different. Maybe in many ways the antithesis of what we now think of as a Buddhist community. Mm -hmm. How it operates, how the, they have a different sense of human relations and all that sort. Yeah. Mm -mm. Well, I don't know a huge about um, a huge amount about anarchism. Uh, I read parts of your book on it, and it was interesting. But I, I, I think, in, despite reading that, it didn't really assuage my my primary concern, which is is something you just mentioned now, which is the relationship between authority and hierarchy. Um, but also just leadership, yeah, and expertise. Uh, you mentioned expertise too, but, you know, if we're talking about the difficulties of creating community and people willing to make sacrifice and exercise devotion, a quality you mentioned before, you know, how do you square all that? You know, how do you square that, 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 that skepticism towards authority and hierarchy with the willingness of individuals on their own to to somehow meaningfully commit to a project in which they may actually have to accept some degree of authority or hierarchy or leadership. Yeah. My relationship with anarchist communities is just as contentious as my relationship 
uh, to Buddhist, to Buddhist communities. And it's around, okay. it's around issues like this. Yeah. Like I, they, you know, the way they talk about hierarchy or authority, it, it just all strikes me as too facile. It's like mm-hmm. real life isn't like that. I said, there's a hierarchy occurring in this Facebook thread right now. Like literally for one thing, like the very form forces us into hierarchy. Someone makes the original post, et cetera, et cetera. But, but also uh, in terms of knowledge, you know, education, whatever, uh, assertiveness, ability to write, to form, you know, rhetoric, form an argument. Uh, this, this all gives rise to hierarchies, human community. So to me, the question is, is how hierarchy, how authority, how leadership, how these things are exercised in a community. Like when I'm in my, uh, the, the non-Buddhist practice posse, you know, you know the idea of the, the, the Sanskrit word guru. Did you know that it was, it's cognate with the English word gravity? I know. Yes. yes gra- uh, garava is, is a Sanskrit form. Um, and it, 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 it carries with it the sense that you can always tell who the guru is in the room because it's the person with the gravitational pull. Mm. Like who does the group consider the authority or the leader such that they keep turning towards him or her or them to see how, how that person might be responding? Um, so that seems to be sort of very deeply human uh, to look to authority. And th- so the question for an anarchist community is how that seemingly – so the question is also is to what extent it's uh, inevitable or to what extent it's just a – an outcome of capitalism so that we're, we're taught to be that way. Like Indian communities are profoundly coercive and authority, like schooling and all that from the beginning. So are Americans. So that, that's a bit, anarchism values educational education deeply because it's not sure about human nature. Mm. We, we can be taught like, is it innate that we are competitive or is that something that's learned? Can we learn to be cooperative? And that has just as much force in the world as being competitive. Um, but in the meantime, since we're only dealing with capitalist subjects who have been taught to be submissive and respect authority in America anyway, from the time they were in preschool, we have to deal with that question. And my solution, I think of a smart anarchist solution is to, to, to again, to make it explicit, to be aware of it. Uh, the people exercising the authority or the authority is probably not a word that ever really comes in an anarchism formation. It might be more leadership, um, that that leadership is exercised in a way that enhances creativity and intelligence and not coercion and submission and so forth. But yeah, I agree with you that these things are unavoidable. I don't don't think anarchists do themselves a favor, favor by pretending like at least at the moment in a capitalist formation that these things can be avoided. Yeah, I think there's also a, a characteristic in here which is, is worth mentioning, which is that like many political ideals, it, it's almost nature denying. I mean, if you look at the natural environment, um, hierarchies are absolutely everywhere. And again, I don't think that means we have to accept them just as given and allow the powerful to dominate again, but it does... It does make me deeply suspicious of those who would make such claims, um, you know, of being able to be anti-hierarchical without it coming across often as just a kind of, you know, form of rebellion against authority. You know, it feels like if a person or a group could integrate 
their own issues with authority, then perhaps that would provide the possibility afterwards of some more mature, balanced approach to sharing power amongst a community and using that power in service to the greater good. But uh, I think that's the point I'm at, Glenn. I, I don't want to be too vague here as well. I'm just, I've got to a point where I'm deeply suspicious these days of the promises of utopian ideologies. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means long term, but it means I, I don't want to be part of projects which deny our humanity, you know, well, the I, complexity of that. So You know, it's like when Buddhists talk about emptiness, the natural question that follows is like, you know, all phenomena are empty. Well, the question that follows is what? Like, empty of what? Yeah. And, and, and the same thing here is like when anarchists talk about anti-hierarchical, anti you say, to what extent, in what regard? And the, the answer is always, it's not inscribed in the institution, that it's fluid and open. As things change, so do hierarchies. It's, 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 it is precisely an, an acknowledgement of, of our humanity, I think, and a refusal to allow institutionalization to, to, to co-opt that humanity. Um, I think... Um yeah, there's some a lot of, a lot has to happen to salvage the the you know, Badu talks about the communist hypothesis because when he starts talking about communism, everyone's like, oh, look at Mao, look at Stalin and Russia, and it's 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 disastrous. And he's like, I'm not talking about history, I'm talking about an a, a hypothesis, like in science. And this hypothesis remains regardless. Uh, it, it goes back to what we said about, you know, what Richard Dawkins, reg regardless of what kinds of formations people have made out of these materials, the hypothesis remains. And we can talk a lot about utopia. I don't think like the starry eyed utopia of a lot of anarchist writing, uh, I'm with you on that. But I think there is something to be said for um, Ernst Bloch's idea of concrete utopia, which says, in whatever formation we find ourselves, like when I teach a class, I create a concrete utopia. I create within that that's that you know small social formation the conditions for what I think w would make for a better world a and a better person in the world. That's what he meant by a concrete utopia. And it also comes out of you know there's this idea in Germany it goes back to the you know the Frankfurt School uh, that. Utopia must always remain a part of our thinking because utopia is really just saying, okay, I have this, you know, your own condition. I have this, this is the condition of my health or my marriage or my job. How can I make it as ideal as possible? So it's like, what would it mean to banish that element from your thought? So even the Frankfurt School people who went through the not, you know, Nazi period said, you know, we insist on 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 maintaining utopia as an element of of thought. Um yeah. So yeah, there, there's uh, the there's something kind of ridiculous about calling yourself an anarchist these days. It's kind of like calling yourself a poet, you know. And partly that, <laughs> like you know, this is like this romanticism and this improbability, this this uh, what's the word like uh, impracticality associated with it. Part of what this book is about that I wrote was to presented in a way that it becomes a feasible, you know, feasible alternative to how we think about 
forming ourselves, whether in the classroom or in the community or in a society, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was considered that until 1939. I mean, until 1939, anarchism was no less silly than conservatism or liberalism or any other, you know, political term you can throw out there. There were millions and millions of anarchists who were members of communities and, you know, syndicates and trade unions and community, you know, you know, culture centers. There was nothing silly or romantic about it at all. Uh, there was a set of ideas that, you know, in very many ways in America, the eight-hour workday is a result of anarchist agitation. Uh, Haymarket, the massacre at Haymarket, had a lot to do with anarchists agitating for the workday. So it was, it was a set of ideas that are imminently practical and desirable if you only knew the word. The problem is so many people have uh, internalized the, the conservative, capitalist – uh, uh, propaganda about anarchism. They just simply have internalized it. Like I start in my book, I opened with a, a professor who actually said to me, um, you know, my wife got a job um, as an administrator in the university. Um, and he said, don't worry, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 I'll keep that on the down low as not to ruin your reputation with the anarchist. And I thought, what, what a ridiculous thing to say. Like, <laughs> It's like saying like you, you you can only be a Democrat if you were like one of the like descended from the grimy yeoman of Washington's army. Like, what does that mean? Like Prince Kropotkin was an anarchist. I mean, professors and you know plumbers and all sorts of people have have embraced these ideas and put them into their lives. And I also thought like how sad that an intelligent, educated person have this view. That shows me the difficult task here that I have at hand to disabuse people of certain ridiculous ideas that really just come out of the capitalist propaganda machine against anarchism. And the last thing I'll say is uh, my experience with all this is not theoretical. It comes out of a lived experience. I went to a school that enacted these values for a year and a half of my life, very formed a year and a half. And we didn't go around talking about the theory, you know, of Bakunin or whatever, but we lived this. We lived yeah. all of this. Uh, and I, it had a profound effect on me. Good. I don't want to give uh, the wrong impression of this work. Um, in fact, I think it's actually very interesting in like much of your writing. It's, uh, it's certainly worth one's attention and time. And I think the point that we should return to here is is that you mentioned a fundamental feature of all this, the attraction to ideas, right? The attraction to ideas. Why would it be that some people were attracted to these ideas? Well, obviously, I've, I've kind of critiqued some of the things that I think are problematic within this worldview, if I'm going to call it that. But there are other elements that you start off with in your book. It is called, you know, a manifesto. It does emphasize practice. And for listeners, it does talk about anarchism as a practice in itself, which should make sense if you've been paying attention to our conversation today, right? <laughs> so let's talk about those ideas so we can sell your book a bit and, and pretend to be capitalists just for a few moments. What were the ideas fundamentally that are attractive or that brought people to anarchism as an ideology? You've talked about already, you know, cynicism towards hierarchies could also be an unwillingness to subjugate oneself, right? Yeah. Or the desire to share power 
in a let's say um hopefully at least a realistic vision of what co-empowerment might be you've talked about um an emphasis on education so obviously that implies that there's an appreciation of the innate intelligence in people mm-hmm. and a desire to educate people not just in terms of an ideological set of pr- propositions but educate people to think for themselves yeah. and, and give rise to a certain degree of individuality or the capacity to act in the world effectively. Yes. Um and you've also mentioned creativity. So that's some of what I I get out of this. What else would you mention? I I opened it in a certain way asking are you already an anarchist? And I right. I did this in order it it is I give a lot of examples that sound very trivial, but what I was trying to show was that so I'll give a few of these examples now. So the mm, opening yeah, one says, ahead. when driving in traffic, do you take care to avoid accidents? What about in the grocery store? Like, do you, you know, navigate your shopping cart cautiously through the crowded aisles and wait your turn, however impatiently, in the checkout line, et cetera, et cetera? You know, going through the security and the airport, all, all these other ways that we enact an anarchist value, namely order and cooperation. So primary values. People don't realize this, but you know, you know the graffiti of anarchism, like the the A in the O, and you, uh, the mm-hmm. O stands for order. People mm. don't realize that anarchism has this this idea that capitalism and totalitarian forms of government and even communism and Marxism they beget disorder, precisely because they fail to enact certain certain values. So so anarchism put calls itself uh, it b- believes that it is. Uh, it is manifesting the value of order, but an order based on cooperation. You don't do these things uh, out of deference or respect for the law. You do these things, or you don't do them out of a sense of duty. That wouldn't be the anarchist value of cooperation. The anarchist value of cooperation, you do it because you desire, I'm, I'm quoting from the book, book here, because you desire to contribute to the smooth operation of the shared collective task at hand. If you do that, then this is – so. and then I give another example of do you actively strive wherever possible to help out family, friends, neighbors, work associates, maybe even strangers? Would you expect the same from them, et cetera, et cetera? Do you believe that we should do this not out of a sense of obligation, guilt, indebtedness, or quid pro quo insurance, but because of a sense of interdependent connection with others? If so, this is the anarchist value of mutual support. So mm. anarchists say, we are in this world together. We need to support one another. We need to find a ways to aid, sometimes called mutual aid, aid one another. You do this, I do this. So we, anarchist values, in other words, aren't alien to how we already live when we're living in a way that creates harmony. Um, so another one I get like um, – do you believe that in a discussion, say, in a classroom with fellow students around a dinner table with a group of friends or at a conference table with colleagues at work, do you believe that in such situations people are more likely to express their views and engage creative and perhaps even bold ways if no overshadowing authority figure is present? For example, the teacher, a mansplaining male, the boss. So if you do believe that uh, – if you believe that groups of people are capable of intelligently determining matters on their own without a coercive figure, then you possess a crucial anarchist disposition of being anti-authoritarian and anti-hierarchical or positively expressed egalitarian. Of course, in all of those examples, 
hierarchies are shifting and changing. Authority is coming and going depending on the topic at hand, etc. But it's not inscribed within the relationship once and for all permanently. I go on, like, you know, do you believe that everyone should be granted the privilege of the most advantaged member of society? If so, uh, you believe we should, we sh- do you believe the same should be extended to animals and to the environment? So, this is the anarchist value uh, that we should eliminate forms of domination. And then I'll just say quickly what some of the other ones are. Another one is another anarchist value is that the things, um, the problems that I'm illustrating there are not the result of individuals. They're not the result of individual belief and behavior, but the result of stru- larger social structures. In other words, these things are embedded in our social structures, the ways we go about doing things. Like, you know, as much as I want to walk everywhere, I can't because I live in a suburb of Philadelphia where there aren't sidewalks or where the sidewalk ends all of a sudden. There's something in the structure. It's not in my belief or my desire that prevents me from walking. That's the anarchist idea that, um, let me see here. Then you share two essential interrelated anarchist views. One, material structures have formative primacy over an individual's consciousness, and thus to change the world, we must first of all change those structures. Um, I don't know what the other one was. Um, well, that, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, then, and, just, and then, so another one, then, then a couple more are that, I go through this whole thing about, you know, do you believe that the government is really made up of people who operate in their own interests? If so, this you you believe in the anarchist idea that stateless government uh, is a part of the solution and the state itself is a part of the problem. So I do this whole analysis of the state. And when I think of the state, even in governmental terms, think of the state in terms of the school you work at or the place where you work. What is functioning as the state? That which legitimizes whatever kind of governments occurs, which has effects on the economy and ideas about who gets paid what and the relations of people. The mm-hmm. idea of the mm-hmm. state is much more than just, you know, like the constitution and, and the laws of a nation and so forth. It comes to me just to think that, um, you know, you're describing the state in a way that it's a living organic being almost that encompasses all of these these reaching tentacles that, that that form and shape the possibilities that a person has within the world. Well, again, I, I, I talk in here about um, the importance of thinking about these things in micro. Um, um, I always forget the term for the middle, the middle one, the mi- micro and macro. And what's the middle? Um, uh, I, I don't know why I always have trouble because that's the one that I'm actually more interested in operating in the, right. the middle. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the world in between, let's call it that. Yeah. Um, it's another M word. Why can't I think of it? Um, uh, the, oh, no, it's not the inter, the inter something. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Finish it, up your point. Yeah, yeah. well, it, it, like it might not be so valuable to think about the state in terms of you know, large scale macro, that might not be that interesting, but think about how the state operates in your friend group or in the place where you work. And that mm-hmm. I have an, okay. an analysis here of what the state is, but, you know, Donald Trump is very aware of the state when he talks about the deep state, you mm-hmm. know, it's like he has a sense that there's something prior 
to his government, both formally and temporally prior. And he's right. Mm -hmm. It's in the constitutions, the laws. You know, he's trying to disrupt, Mm -hmm. he's trying to overturn the democracy. And there's something about the state that is preventing that, even though his government would love to do that. Um, So anyway, the, the, the final two points are, the, the final two values are, do you think uh, that um, capitalism itself is uh, implicated in, you know, poverty, widespread hunger, plunge of resources, deprivation, racism, misogyny? N- not, not that these things would not, ex- would, would not exist without capitalism. They might exist in other formations as well, but capitalism happens to be our current large-scale economic system that that seems to perpetuate you know you know warfare and devastation and slaughter of animals and pollution and and all that sort of thing so i mean so the basic idea there's that there there are some basic values operating here um and that we could we can live with those values in in terms of Everyday life. I, I'm still trying to find that term for the middle. I don't know why I always forget what that is. Oh, I do have it here. Hold on. Um, in my very definition, I have it. Uh, go ahead. Um, just real quick, meso. So the, the meso, micro, okay. meso, and macro levels. Ah, like it's just, macro, just meso. Micro being kind of like individual, like an individual ethics like I live these in my own life. I try to be non-coercive, et cetera. You know, macro is the old anarchism before 1939 interested in total revolution. Uh, but the meso, I think, is all we can hope for right now, which is kind of saying we're going to create these conditions in our institutions. It's kind of the, the, the middle ground. Okay. There's a lot in there, and I think each point could be elaborated on and discussed and critiqued and thought about, obviously, a great deal. But it it came across as a kind of antidote almost towards the the neoliberal machine of our of our age which hopefully is in its uh, death throw but uh if the, if that death just produces more Donald Trumps we're in trouble there's a sentence included in the introduction to the book where you say this is kind of almost an essential and necessary step that we need to take if we're to survive yeah the neoliberal machination so to speak but um yeah, I mean, I would just say that because because time's running out, Glenn. I just like to say that, you know, I, I think if people are interested in these themes, if they're hearing the more that say American focused or political orientated discourse here, you, you shouldn't you know you shouldn't be distracted by that or or, or, or turned off by it. Um, we need more people thinking creatively about the challenges to the status quo, not just within the practicing life, but society at large. And I think reinvigorating anarchism, which is kind of what you're proposing in part with this book, it can certainly be a part of that project. And I think because you present, as you've just laid out now, you know, these thoughts about what are the implications of thinking along the lines of anarchist thought, it turns out that many of them are actually a form of resistance to, you know, the neoliberal status quo. So in that sense, they are quite clearly not just a practice, but they're a recognition of how you know, many of us are, are, are trying to hold on to or maintain our sense of basic humanity in spite of the fact that society at large may be pushing us as students to just keep reproducing the economy or are pushing us politically to become more and more polarized or are pushing us economically to just be survivors in a 
an increasingly shrinking economic you know situation so i think from that perspective engaging with this kind of thought is not just the oh god it's that boring political stuff it's actually you know a, a pump of lifeblood into our collective conscious uh, consciousness and understanding of of what might be necessary or possible in the times we live in so that's my plug for your book len thank you <laughs> i yeah i agree <laughs> yeah, of, course. <laughs> of course you do <laughs> final point then practical point we've got like two three minutes people heard you talking about this um, non-buddhism posse and they heard you talking about insight seminars i've plugged insight seminars quite a bit yes uh, one thing i haven't talked about though is this posse so where can people find out more and can they get involved if they want to Absolutely. InsightSeminars.com. That's I-N-C-I-T-E, you know, seminars.com. Uh, Go to the groups page. Uh, absolutely. You click the link. You just have to register at Eventbrite. Not that it costs anything. We, one, one thing about Insight Seminars is we, we you know, you, did, you said something I know you were kidding about being capitalists for a minute, talking about selling a book. I always like to remind people like, you know, earning a living isn't capitalism. Capitalism is profoundly exploitative and it's stealing the, the product, the money that other people have labored for. And, you know, selling your artwork or asking for donations for a pro podcast, that's not capitalism. That's trying, that's just earning a living, trying to make it in. So we, we charge money because we want to pay people fairly for doing the seminars, but we always offer what we call a solidarity ticket, which is just $1. It would be free, but Eventbrite makes you pay $1. Um, uh, so it doesn't cost anything, but we are membership driven and we hope people will become more involved in the, in the larger community and go to the Patreon and maybe pay five bucks a month or something um, because we're trying to build a, a larger community. But if you just want to curious and just want to check something out, yeah, go, go to the Insight seminars.com page and navigate over to the groups and you can read all about the non-Buddhist practice posse. Click the link there and sign up. Uh, you can also just send me an email if you don't want to do all that and say you want to join us. We have new people joining all the time and it's, it's fun. Someone joined us new yesterday and he commented on how warm it was. Like he expected some austere, scary thing because he knew about, <laughs> he knew about my punk rock past and my critique of non-Buddhism and he was surprised at how warm and open it was. So we hope, we hope people feel comfortable joining in. Just check it out. Nice. Nice. Good. Good. Well, look, Glenn, um, time is generally up right now. And I appreciate you giving up your time to come and have a conversation with us. It's been interesting as always. All right, back at you, Matthew. You're the best. Yeah. You're the best podcaster out there. No, oh, you're, you're too kind. No, I'm not. <laughs> 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 oh dear all right well look um you take care of yourself and best of luck with the release of the book and thank uh, you with the non-posse and the, the insight seminars yes thank you so much all right cuckoo as they say in italy or hey there if you're american and you're right mate if you're from the uk look really how many of these episodes have you listened to how much have you got out of these conversations and all that hard work we put into them? If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. Call it Dana if it makes it more palatable. You know it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free that we too often forget 
the hard-working men and women are giving up their time, energy and effort to make it for you. None of it is free. And that includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com, scroll down on the right for the donation button, and do your part. Thank you.